Our scripture reading today is from the first chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, starting at verse 39. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, The child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what God has spoken to her by the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the earth and heaven pass into our minds, dear Lord. May we drink forever from the soul of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Speaking of sports, the Washington Post has several excellent columnists whose writings are found on the op-ed page every week. But one of the most popular columnists appears on the sports page. When I interviewed with the pastor nominating committee of this church 12 years ago, no one spoke to me about George Will or David Ignatius or E.J. Dion. And that was back in the days when you had to subscribe to a paper and open it up in the morning to be able to read it. But one member went out of his way to talk about the advantage of living in a city where you could read Thomas Boswell. I read every column he writes, this member said. He is the best writer at the paper. Now, I'm a sports fan, and I do read some of Boswell's columns, but not quite to the degree that this enthusiastic member does. But this summer, when for the second time in three years, the Nationals broke our hearts, One of Boswell's columns attracted my attention. On September 2nd, which if you know baseball is a month before the season ends, Boswell wrote, In daily life, times of happiness or serenity seem to fly past at the speed of forgetfulness. But the weight of the past or anxiety over the future, constantly try to intrude into our consciousness. It is a tough job, he said, to digest the past, enjoy the precise present moment, and no matter what, no matter what, have hope for the future. Except in sports, he wrote. Two nights in a row, Nats fans cheered the instant that Ryan Zimmerman homers ended up on the grass in center field without an iota of 
fear about what horrors might happen next when the Cardinals came up to bat. Why? Because in sports, he said, we are prepared to shun the past and given the slightest excuse to choose the best available approximation of hope. Soon it will be zero zero again. Then once more we'll forget and forgive faster than it seems possible. We will digest loss, refocus on the present, and participate in hope. Where else can we get a deal like that? As Christmas approaches, I always feel the challenge and the responsibility to give voice to hope. Of all the seasons of the year, there is something about Christmas that leads us to hope again, to believe in hope again, or at least to want to believe in hope again. This desire for hope is on our minds no matter what has gone on in our lives since the most immediate Christmas past. It is there no matter who is no longer with us or what we are no longer able to do with our mind or our body. It is there no matter what new consternation has opened up in our lives or in our world. Whether or not we are among those able to affirm the central doctrine of this season, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we yearn for the hope that this affirmation contains. Thus, we gather in worship today. For some of us, it is something as ordinary as baseball that can at least point to the hope that lies behind the promise of Christmas. But as hopeful as we are with every lead going into a late inning, with every 0-0 score at the beginning of every season, somehow the hope of this season, the hope of Christmas, involves something more than winning the elusive World Series. In the text that we have read today, which is a lead-in to the birth story of Christ, which we'll read on Christmas Eve, a woman named Elizabeth is in the sixth month of her pregnancy. Elizabeth is a descendant of the priest Aaron, who is the brother of Moses way back in the book of Exodus. She is also married to a priest named Zechariah. As Luke narrates her story, he says without his usual artfulness and beauty of language that Elizabeth is getting along in years. That's kind of a rude way for a gospel writer to describe one of the heroines of the Bible. Getting along in years. But Luke does it. He also says that Elizabeth has been barren all her life. So this is her first pregnancy. Elizabeth has remained in seclusion for five months. 
since conceiving with her equally incredulous husband, Zechariah. In the sixth month, Elizabeth's much younger relative arrives at her door. Mary, too, is pregnant, much more recently. When Mary enters Elizabeth's home and greets her, the child in Elizabeth's womb leaps, foreshadowing the role that Elizabeth's child will play as John the Baptist, pointing to Mary's child, Jesus. Three months later, Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist, and six months later, Mary gives birth to Jesus. Now what has struck me about this story, is, which Casey shared with the 8.30 worship service last week so beautifully, what has struck me are the words that Elizabeth speaks when Mary first enters her home and the child leaps in her womb. Why has this happened to me, she says, that the mother of my Lord has come to me. This sense of absolute wonder that Mary has, that Elizabeth has, leads Elizabeth to be able to then bless her young kinswoman, Mary. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment, a fulfillment of what was spoken to her a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Elizabeth experiences absolute amazement that she is in the presence of something larger than herself. She is in the presence of something more beautiful than herself. She is in the presence of something more powerful than herself. She is in the presence of something greater than she has ever known. And that sense of amazement is what gives Elizabeth hope. In this very important year in all of our lives, I want to point to two places where I see glimpses of the kind of hope which Elizabeth has for Mary. Even the kind of hope that Thomas Boswell sees occurring at least on a fleeting basis in baseball. The hope that comes when we believe in something that is larger than ourselves. You have heard me speak from time to time of the novelist and essayist Marilyn Robinson, who is, in my opinion, as good a theologian as anyone who is writing in the tr Christian tradition in which we are comfortable worshiping. In addition to being a terrific novelist, Robinson is a scholar and teacher of John Calvin, the French reformer from, who, from whom we Presbyterians are direct descendants. Calvin is famous, among other things, for emphasizing the sinfulness of humanity. The acronym by which his theology goes, TULIP, in that acronym the first letter stands for total depravity. No one can ever accuse Calvin of being soft on sin. Yet Robinson also finds in Calvin, as she does in other Protestant reformers, a deep-seated belief in, if not the goodness of humanity, 
humanity's capacity to read the scriptures, to hear the word of God, and to respond. Such capacity, Calvin believed, rests with each human being, regardless of their past, regardless of their station in life, regardless of their level of education or literacy or sophistication. It is evident, says Calvin, that the Lord abundantly manifests his wisdom to every human being on earth. As a scholar of Calvin and the other leaders of the Protestant Reformation, Robinson sees as one of the hallmarks of our tradition, the Reformed tradition, quote, a reverence for the sacred integrity of every pilgrim's progress through earthly life. This reverence has roots, she says, in the ancient Hebraic assertion that a human being is an image of God. Now what does this have to do with Elizabeth's blessing of Mary? What does this have to do with the hope for which we yearn this season? Simply this. We live in a day and a time in which across the world, the language of our politics, our entertainment, our everyday conversation divides us one against another. Through the way we speak and depict one another in images and graphics and photography, we diminish and dismiss one another. While ironically we live in many ways in the most open and accepting atmosphere our society has ever known, we are in other ways more narrow, intolerant, and tribal than we have been in decades. In such a time in which denigration and violence of word and deed become accepted and expected norms, to be reminded of such simple Christian truths that every human being is an image of God, that every pilgrim's progress through earthly life is a sacred journey, that the Lord abundantly manifests His wisdom to every individual, every individual on earth. To be reminded of these truths is to hear a rarely spoken and oft-muted word of hope. And it is to have at least the opportunity to claim that hope and believe it and live out of it. To truly live as if every human being is an image of God is to participate in something larger, much larger than ourselves. It is to participate in hope. So if hope sometimes comes through the sports-minded, and at other times comes through those who are steeped in the Reformed tradition, at still other times it comes through the stories of sheer human 
courage and grace in the lives of those we see among us that we know best. Sometimes those inside the church and sometimes those outside the church. Some of you know that people in our congregation had the sad privilege this past year and a half of standing by Angela McMillan Ayers as she nurtured her 32-year-old daughter, Lisa, as Lou Gehrig's disease had hopped on Lisa's shoulders and ordered her to wade slowly through the waters of the River Jordan. Lisa McMillan was not a member of Westminster and attended here only once in her wheelchair when her mother married her husband, Whit, a marriage that was moved up in time so that Lisa could be certain to attend. Lisa had been reared Roman Catholic, had more or less left that branch of the body of Christ, and when she was diagnosed with ALS, among the many things that she did was plan in precise detail a non-religious memorial service through which her friends and family could celebrate her life and carry on in her absence. Part of the service contained a film made by a documentary filmmaker. The film consists solely of Lisa in front of the camera, alone on the screen, narrating some of her thoughts and experiences over her life and over the year of her illness. It is a funny, sad, beautiful, life-affirming video. With her mother's permission, I share with you a few of the quotes from Lisa. The documentary opens with Lisa saying that she, her twin sister, and two brothers had an idyllic upbringing in what she describes as, quote, ten acres in the middle of nowhere, Ohio. And in the captions at the bottom of the screen, nowhere is capitalized. After college, Lisa moved to Washington and began working for the federal government. I love my job, she says in halting speech. It was my favorite identity in my new city. And I thought I would get fired on my first day because I didn't know anything about defense or the area in which I worked. But now I love it. My job in the government, she says, is like falling in love. So I continue to work in the area of defense and veterans' health and just kept doing that for the last seven years. Lisa tells some funny stories about the opportunities that her job provided for her to exact revenge on her parents for simply rearing her. When I traveled overseas and it was safe to untravel on the ground, she said, I would travel by helicopter. 
My favorite thing to do was to lean out the open door of the helicopter in the air and stick my legs out and have people take photographs of me in order to scare my mother. At one point she said her father called her when she was in Afghanistan. And she said, just a minute, Dad, I can't hear you. I'm going to have to ask the bombers to be quiet for a minute. (laughs) Then the documentary turns to the days of her illness. I was diagnosed with ALS in April of 2014, she says, one year after I got married. Her voice grows quieter than at any point in the video. When I told my husband, it was the first time I saw him cry, ever. My mother was devastated and immediately started cooking because she's Italian and that's what we do when there's a family crisis. We sat down and had a huge family dinner with my mom, my stepdad, me, and my husband. Lisa McMillan's life continued like this until the end, working for absolutely as long as she could, traveling when she was able, welcoming into her life the birth of a nephew to her twin sister, sharing a huge family dinner whenever she could because she too was Italian. And that's what we do. At the secular service that Lisa had designed at the Fort Myer Officer Club, the word of hope was spoken to two or three hundred of her contemporaries, nearly all in their twenties and thirties, spoken through her courage, her bravery, her humor, her love, her beauty, her sheer affirmation of life in the face of death. And all of us who were there, whether we were Catholic or Protestant, Christian or Jewish, religious or secular, were better for having known her to whatever degree we did, for having witnessed the story of her life, her illness, her death, for having most of all participated for one brief moment in something larger than ourselves. Blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment, a fulfillment of what was spoken, a fulfillment of what was spoken to her. My friends, whether the word of hope comes through the cycle of forgiveness for fans of our favorite sports teams, or whether it comes through the theological reminder and affirmation of God's availability to each of us and of the image of God within all of us, 
or whether it comes through the courage of a young woman who faces a fatal disease with utmost grace and humor, each of these incarnations of hope are, I believe, part of the larger picture of hope that is the reason we gather this season of the year for worship, Christian or non-Christian, believer or non-believer or half-believer. In the presence of such hope, in the presence of such hope, all we need say, all we can say, is with Elizabeth, why has this happened to me that the presence of my Lord has come to me?